Go into the book of Isaiah. Go into the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. <clears throat> uh, Dwayne came and asked me uh, a few weeks ago if, he, if I thought that a song about the return of Christ would be appropriate for the season. And I certainly think so. Um, you know, Christ certainly began his redeeming work at his first coming. But I'm looking forward to a day when he completes that redeeming work. And every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder if there's anybody in here who uh, you couldn't have sung that song with Dwayne. Uh, you weren't ready. In your, in your heart, you said, I, wait, <laughs> I, I hope the Lord doesn't come back today because, well, maybe that because is because you've, you never settled the question. You don't know if the Lord would be coming for you. Maybe that because is you know that there's someone in your life that you want to share Christ with and you're hoping for an opportunity, but you just haven't done it yet. So I hope the Lord doesn't come back today because, well, I'm not, I haven't told them. Maybe you're hoping that the Lord doesn't come back today because you know that you're harboring sin in your heart. And when you stand before the Lord to receive the rewards for the things done in your body, you don't want that to stand against you. Certainly a lot of reasons, but uh, as my grandfather is fond of saying, I don't see him here this morning, he'd always tell me that I needed to be ready to preach, pray, or die at any moment. And I, I think that's good, but I, I think along with being ready to die, being ready for the Lord's return, standing ready with the candles trimmed, if you will. Anyway, that's not what the message is about this morning. I, that's what the song was about, and I think that's great. I think as we think about the fact that Christ is involved in human history, that Christ is God with us, certainly that involvement and that being with us will be manifest when the Lord returns. When he returns first to call his people home and then to establish his kingdom among men. <clears throat> All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 9. Last week we, we had a Christmas message and it was an unusual Christmas message because we went to not a traditional Christmas passage. We went to the book of John. We spent the whole service there in John chapter 1. We're going to another unusual Christmas passage this week. We are not getting into Matthew and Luke's accounts yet. Though if you come back on Wednesday, we will certainly be in Matthew's account on Wednesday night. But uh, we're going to the Old Testament to see a prophecy of the coming Christ and who he would be and really who we know him to be. Uh, I've titled this message, Baby Names for the Infant Christ. Uh, whenever I think about this passage, I, I think of the process of naming a baby, and many people in this room have had that task, and maybe you felt that it was a daunting task, and maybe you didn't because you knew you were going to name your baby after your uncle or something. But uh, I think sometimes it feels like, <clears throat> for us especially, I mean, we were choosing Judah's name, uh, we labored over it a bit, and it was like, you know, we knew we were expecting, and, uh, you know, one of us would come up with a name and bring it to the other one, and we'd be like, eh, I don't know. You know, what do you think about this name? Uh, I knew somebody by that name who really rubbed me the wrong way. I, you know, or what about this name? Well, you know, well, we have this second cousin who has already named their child that name, so we can't double up, you know, and actually, 
we chose the name Judah long before Judah was born. Um, and uh, just before Judah was born, some close friends of ours told us, oh, our baby is due, and we've picked the name, and, and the name is Judah. And we were like, oh, now it's going to seem like we stole it. But uh, they actually didn't end up naming their child Judah anyway, and we would have gone with it anyway. We really liked the name. It felt like a lot of pressure. And, you know, I think one of the reasons it feels like pressure is because when, when you name a child, that's their name, like forever. And that name might be a good name today, but 50 years from now, it might not be a good name, which is why middle names are such a good idea. Because you have a fallback, right? Like, if I name you this... And later, that name is not good. You can just go by your middle name. And I know a lot of people who go by their middle names. And, uh, you know, there are some names that just don't, uh, don't have the same ring to them after certain movements in society or history. I'm sure there were a lot of guys named Adolf in the 1950s who went by their middle names after that. You know, it's been a, it's been a rough few years for all the ladies out there who are named Karen. They've been having a really... They've been having a tough go of it. Um, so, names are important. We're going to be looking at the prophesied name of the coming Messiah here in, in Isaiah chapter 9 in just a moment. Of course, um, the name Jesus would ultimately be the name that Christ would go by. And it was a name given by God. And, and again, on Wednesday, if you come back, we'll look at Matthew 1, the announcement uh, excuse me, we'll be in Luke 1 this Wednesday looking at the announcement to Mary and, and the fact that it was God who chose the name Jesus. And I think many of us understand the significance of the name Jesus. Uh, Jesus' name means God saves or God delivers. And I think that's certainly appropriate. In Isaiah chapter 7, which we won't have time to look at today, we, we see that uh, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which we sang about this morning, uh, God with us. Uh, and certainly many very meaningful names, but we're going to get actually a list of names of Christ, titles that he has here in Isaiah 9. Let me give you a little historical context, and we actually talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning, and I feel like I did a really feeble job. I'm going to be very general because we could spend the whole time talking about what's going on in Isaiah here. Uh, but basically, as per usual, Israel, God's people, have wandered away from God, they lived in their sin, they worshipped idols, now God is bringing judgment, and part of Isaiah's message is announcing the judgment, and if you've been part of our Minor Prophets series in Sunday evenings, you've seen many other prophets who similarly announce judgments at different periods of Israel's history, and, and as Israel is facing this announcement of judgment, and there are some political things going on that make the people of Judah especially think that things are about to go very bad for them. Um, their king Ahaz has made a really terrible alliance uh, with uh, the Assyrians and you know Judah had been under siege and there had been all this trial and trouble. And uh, we won't get too far into that, but basically the, the Israel is languishing under the not just what's happening, but what seems like is coming down the pike, what could happen next. They're anxious they are oppressed. And although Isaiah does give plenty of oracles of God's judgment, mixed in, he gives messages of God's future deliverance. The fact that God will not abandon his people forever, but will ultimately deliver. 
We know that in Isaiah's time, there was a remediation, a, a, a near fulfillment of this prophecy where God would immediately deliver. But the New Testament shows us that God's ultimate deliverance for his people would only be found in Christ. It was Jesus who would fulfill those prophecies of deliverance to his people. We get one such prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9. Certainly, it had an immediate meaning to the people of Israel at the time, which is God will not abandon us. He will send a deliverer. But to us, we know who that ultimate deliverer is. So we know for certainty, because the New Testament spells it out for us very clearly, that this is a prophecy about Jesus. Here we are in Isaiah chapter 9. And the last several sermons, I have covered huge swaths of Scripture. I think we're averaging like, 20 verses a week, which is, I mean, it's a lot. Today we're going to look at one verse, one verse, just one. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, here they come, Wonderful, Counselor the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank You so much for this revelation of Jesus Christ that even 700 years before Jesus would come, we knew His character. Father, as we now think of who Christ is and what He has done for us, would You bless in this time? Would You help us to uh, walk away from this service with greater faith in what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do for his people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we get within this verse this list of names that each of them so carefully chosen and so uh, closely tied to the total revelation of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. So we will take the next 25 minutes and we will just consider this list of titles that is given to Christ. Now, you may know this primarily from Handel's Messiah, right? This, uh, you, you probably could have sung this verse to, to me. Uh, please, please don't. You can do that later on your own time. But uh, here, here we begin. The first name given is Wonderful. We have a little uh, hymn that we sing about this, uh, don't we? Isn't he wonderful, wonderful, wonderful? Isn't Jesus my Lord wonderful? Eyes have seen, ears have heard, it's recorded in God's word. Isn't Jesus my Lord wonderful? Do you know that one? And we could maybe just breeze right past that and think of what we normally think of as the definition of wonderful. I mean, I think we use this maybe too much. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. We hear some good news. We say, that's wonderful. Do you ever think about the, what the word wonderful actually means? Well, the definition is right in the word. Something that is wonderful is something that when you ponder it, it fills you with wonder. It's something that is marvelous. It causes you to marvel at it. It's something that is astonishing. It makes you stop and think. I think of things that I have experienced in a, in a very tangible way that are wonderful. I remember, 
I think the first time I ever saw mountains, um, and some of you will say that's not mountains, but we went down to um, take my brother Andrew to college. He went to Liberty University. In order to get there, you have to drive through the mountains of West Virginia. And I remember, you know, we'd been on the road for probably 10 hours. I think we drove through the night, if I remember, and kind of coming to in the morning, and we're just coming into the mountains, and me being probably 11 or 12, and seeing these mountains, I was just like awestruck. I I couldn't believe how big they looked in person. These that's a mountain. And I just was like staring out the window, like mouth agape. Like it was totally amazing. That was wonderful. And I understand since then I've seen much bigger and more impressive mountains than you have too. And you're like, oh, West Virginia, that's not, those are just hills, man. Um, for us Michiganders, those are definitely mountains. There's no argument there. But that was wonderful. I remember um, you've probably had this experience looking up at the stars. And with what we know about the stars, especially now with all, all that science has done to show us how big they are and how far, far away they are and how many there are. And I know like when we were living up north, stargazing was amazing. Uh, northern Wisconsin has a very dark sky. Many nights you can clearly see the Milky Way. We occasionally would get the northern lights up there as well mostly in green hues, and uh, just going out and and staring at that and even just laying down on the ground and looking up at the sky and just wondering, trying to comprehend how big it is, how vast it is, how seemingly infinite it is. That's the idea of wonderful, and this is the name that is ascribed to Jesus Christ our Savior. By His very nature, Jesus causes us to wonder. When we stop and ponder who Christ is and what He has accomplished and what He has promised to accomplish, it should cause us to just stand mouth agape in awe of who He is. I think when we get so busy or so caught up in just doing what we've always done and we just get uh, caught up in the the day-to-day of life and we stop wondering at Christ and we give up our awe of Christ, we really lose something. We really lose what should motivate us to live for God, what should motivate us to faithfulness, which is the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I think... One thing that we wonder about with Jesus is we wonder at his deeds. This is what we've been doing in the book of Mark. I mean, we've been in it for months now, uh, consistently looking at. Mark is focused on the deeds of Christ. We did get some teaching, but mostly what Jesus did. We've seen him heal the lame and the leprous and do healing works that no one else could do. We saw him just recently command the seas with two words. He told the weather what to do. We've seen him conquer armies of demons. When we think about the deeds of Christ and we dwell on them and we meditate on them, it should cause us to wonder at who he is. What's the most miraculous, wonderful thing that Jesus did? I think, without a doubt, that he rose from the dead. 
There are many people in history who have been raised from the dead by God. You can probably think of a few. Jairus' daughter. You think of Lazarus. Uh, you think of some Old Testament figures. You know, Elijah had a few uh, life uh, re- restoring uh, miraculous events and all of that. But there's only one person who ever rose from the dead. And if you didn't do well in, in English class, let me spell that out for you. There's only one person in history who by his own power conquered death and returned to life. And that is Jesus Christ. And you think about the power and the wonder of what Jesus has done. We wonder at His deeds. We also wonder at His love. I hope that a theme that you've noticed about who Jesus is as we've, as we've worked through just the first few chapters of the book of Mark is that He has compassion and He has love. And in our, uh, in our Old Testament Minor Prophets series, We've been talking about a word that I like to pause on words that I've done word studies on, and I have a lot of word studies still to do, but we've talked a lot about this word that permeates the Old Testament, chesed, which is God's steadfast love. Well, you know what Jesus Christ did? When, he, when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, we talked about this at length last week, Christ showed us who God is, and we got to see in a very tangible way the love of God in Christ. We wonder at Christ's love, and not just Christ's love for the people that He healed and the people that He delivered from demons, but Christ's love for me. The fact that Christ loved me so much that He became a man, first of all, but that He died an excruciating death on the cross. We wonder at Christ's faithful love. We also wonder, and we took the whole service last week to do this, we wonder at the incarnation of Christ. If you uh, were to look at the context of this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, you see that this is all about the birth of the child. So really the thing we're meant to wonder at very specifically is that this child is born. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Certainly it's a good thing to meditate on and wonder at the incarnation of Christ. And and just to review, we talked about last week, we we marvel at the fact that Christ reveals to us the Father. We marvel at the fact that Christ offers us new birth, new life. We marvel at the fact that Christ takes our penalty. We marvel at the fact that Christ can understand our cares and our trials and our woes. He knows us. He knows us because He has experienced everything we do. And I failed to mention last week that there is a Christmas hymn that you probably know and love that talks about this very beautifully, about the fact that Christ in His incarnation can understand us. The song, O Holy Night. The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need. To our weakness is no stranger. Behold your King, before Him lowly bend. This is Christ. We marvel at the fact that He understands us, that God could know us by experience. Sorrow He knows. Hunger He knows. Temptation He knows. Pain He knows. It is wonderful to think. 
as we consider the Christ of Christmas, I think it's appropriate to maintain that spirit of wonder. That we pause and think about who Christ is and what He has done. The next name here given is Counselor. How is Christ a Counselor? And Counselor means exactly what you think it means. It's a person who gives counsel. He's a Counselor in that He has given us counsel in in His revelation of Christ, in His teachings, and ultimately, the entire Word of God completed in the work of Christ, reveals to us God's counsel. God gives us wisdom. He tells us how to live. And and many commentators connect the idea of wonderful and the word counselor together. The idea being that the counsel that Christ gives is wonderful. And certainly as we see the teachings of Christ in the Gospels, we see that people are just kind of awed by them. To you, maybe uh, love your neighbor and turn the other cheek seems old hat. Uh, The idea of loving your enemy and doing good to those who despise you and hate you, that, that seems like something you've heard your whole life. When Jesus taught it, it was revolutionary. When Jesus taught that those who lead should be serve and should serve, and the first shall be last and the last shall be first, people were totally confounded by that. The counsel that Christ was giving is wonderful. Have you ever thought about how lucky we are that we, in this age, the church age, the age of grace, we have the entire Word of God in our hands? And I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth marveling at or wondering at God's counsel that He has given to us. Counsel completed in Christ. I think to have so much surety about who God is, what He expects of us, and to have such access to it as we have today. Well, certainly in this way, Christ serves as our wonderful Counselor. It's wonderful that that Christ's counsel is sure, that it is definite, that we can rely on it to be true. And maybe you've had this experience as you talk about the Lord to people who don't know Him, but I found that a lot of people, uh, they are making up their own truth about who God is. And many people who claim to be Christians and they really like the idea of Jesus, but they are just making it up as they go. They're really not taking advantage of the fact that we have the counsel of God's Word and it is wonderful because it is steadfastly and reliably true. In an age where we question everything and we tear down every institution and we, we reformulate everything, there is a rock that does not move in the Word of God. The next name that's given to Christ, <clears throat> the Mighty God. Jesus is fully God. The book of Philippians tells us that uh, Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God. When I think about the fact that Christ is the mighty God, and I think about that in the context of the Christmas story, I think, what humility. What humility for the mighty God, as Isaiah describes Him, to be born as a helpless 
baby. And not as, as, as the infant of some great leader or great ruler, but the infant of a blue-collar family who were displaced from their home and staying in a backwater, kind of rough town, couldn't even get a place in the inn. What humility for Christ to take on such lowly estate. This is the mighty God, Isaiah tells us. We have time. Let's go quickly to Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to see the humility of the mighty God. If you think about the fact that the Jewish people who were looking for a Messiah missed, many of them missed Christ. They would not believe. It's probably because they didn't meet, he didn't meet their expectation. They expected a mighty ruler. They expected a military deliverer. They, they expected someone who would be uh, a politically subversive. And Christ really was, uh, at, at his first coming, didn't serve the purposes that they thought that he would serve. Because they were told that this, that this deliverer, this Messiah, the one they were waiting for, would be the mighty God. And then look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Isaiah wants us to think uh, of this Christ, this coming deliverer, as the mighty God, and certainly he is that. But we dwell on the mighty God come in human flesh, and we know that he would live a humble life and that he would ultimately die a humiliating death. That's what, we, that's what we should think of as we think of this Christ, the mighty God, but the humility that He displayed. The next name given to Christ. The Everlasting Father. Say, wait a minute. Whoa, slow down. My systematic theology alarm is going off. Okay? So, don't answer this out loud because I've asked people to answer this question out loud before. And they were wrong. So, <laughs> is Jesus the Father? Theologically, the answer is no. Okay? Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is God the Son. They are all God. This is the mystery of the Trinity. They are all God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not Jesus. I understand that's twisting your brain a little bit. It's a little bit wonderful. Okay? But how could Isaiah say that this coming Messiah is the everlasting Father? I think probably the universal understanding of that is that uh, Isaiah wants to emphasize that this one would be as much God as the Father is God. You think to the Hebrew mind to whom Isaiah was originally writing, they really thought, when they thought of God, they thought of the Father. This was their 
understanding of God. Their understanding of the Spirit was limited, certainly, and their understanding of the Son was very limited. And you get um, some interesting passages where I think the Son is active in the Old Testament and they're calling Him an angel, the angel of the Lord. So there's kind of this limited understanding of the Son of God. And so Isaiah, prophesying through, through, through God, is saying to us that this Messiah is God not in some secondary sense. It's not that He's divine. He is divine, but it's more than that. He is as much God as the Father is God. They are co-equal in glory. It's, if you've never really pondered that, that is actually a really important point theologically, and this is a great proof text for this. But the emphasis is actually not on the Father. The emphasis in, in this phrasing here is on the idea that this one, this deliverer, is everlasting. He is everlasting. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem, but he existed in eternity past and will exist into eternity future. He was there when the world was formed and God breathed life into Adam's nostrils. He was there when God made his covenant with Abraham. He was there when Jacob wrestled with God. He was there when God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. He was there when the Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace during the Babylonian captivity. He was there when the apostles were being tortured and killed. He was there when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 and the, and the Jews were dispersed. He was there when the church was being formed and grown and attacked from the inside out. He was there through war and conquest. He was there when the new world was found. He was there when his people were facing genocide in the concentration camps. He is there now interceding for us and he will be there forever reigning in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. He is everlasting. If a person claims to be a Christian and they want to ascribe to Jesus the status of a created being of a secondary person of maybe a very highly exalted angel or whatever else. And by the way, there are probably tens of millions of people in the world today who hold that opinion. You don't just have to throw out the revelation of most of the Gospels. You don't just have to throw out the revelation of the epistles and certainly John's revelation, his prophetic revelation. You've got to throw out most of the Old Testament too. Because the Bible, the witness of Scripture, basically from cover to cover, is that this Deliverer, this Jesus, is God. He is everlasting. I said it last week, but I'll say it again. Jesus' own witness. He said, before Abraham was, I am. The next title given to Christ. The Prince of peace. Probably out of this whole passage, the Prince of Peace is, is the most used term out of these few that are listed here uh, by Christians. And I think probably with good reason. Because of what the idea of the Prince of Peace implies for you. The characteristic of this royal son, this prince, is that he is characterized by peace. 
He brings peace in several ways. And let me explain that to you a little bit. First of all, Christ brings peace to tumultuous lives. Life is full of trouble. You know that, and the older you get, the more you see it, that life is full of trouble. There are trials on every side, and every time you've crossed one hurdle, you're staring down the next hurdle. You ever feel that way? And for a person who is facing all of that trouble alone, peace would be the farthest thing from your mind. It's just one storm after another. But for those who know Christ, it's not that our troubles just go away, though they will one day. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's that in the midst of all the trouble, I can have peace. I heard an illustration given once of this. It was a man, he was an art collector, and he he was looking for a a, a specific piece of art that he was going to put. And he said, in order to match my collection, what this piece of art needs to do is it needs to perfectly represent peace. He says, in in whatever layout of his art, he said, I'm looking for the perfect representation of peace. I'm willing to pay top dollar. Bring me your art. So all these artists, they... They brought the art and they showed the the art dealer or the collector and he unveils the first and it's this quiet meadow. You know, off in the distance, there are a few rabbits just hopping along in this painting and uh, just just a blissful sunny day. He looked at uh, another one and it was a a boat that was out on a peaceful glass-like sea just sailing along without a care in the world. He thought they were good paintings, but they didn't do what he thought it should do. He came to a third painting, and the painting was of a tumultuous waterfall with thousands of gallons of water being poured down and carving into the rocks below. But alongside on the cliff was a small nest where a mother bird covered her children. And he said, that is the picture of peace. In the midst of all the tumult, those little birds had no idea of the trouble. because They were kept safe. They knew that they were protected. This is the kind of peace that Christ offers to his followers today. And I know it's a struggle for some people when you put your faith in Christ and you still face trials and you say, why am I still facing trials? I'm obeying. I'm believing. I'm following. Why am I still facing trouble? Well, we will. Actually, Jesus was very clear that the Christian life is full of trouble. But he's also clear that in the midst of all the trouble, he is there to protect and to comfort and to guide. He is the Prince of Peace. But not only is he the Prince of Peace in giving us peace in our hearts, he's also the Prince of Peace in that one day, He will bring tangible, lasting peace to the world. I feel like every few years, the the news gets swept up with the new global conflict. You know, not very long ago, it was all about Russia and Ukraine. It's just kind of a terrible thing. Still, obviously, a terrible thing. But then kind of the focus shifted to this war between Israel and Hamas. 
and certainly a lot of focus still given. And those things are terrible. But just before that, there was the war on terror. And, and just before that, there was this war and that war and the great wars. And, and on you can go. I mean, basically, since, uh, since Cain and Abel, we've pretty much had wars. Uh, somebody told me recently, and I do not remember, but how many years since America's founding it has not been at war. And it was like, does anybody know, like 20 or something out of 200-something. That, that we've not been at war. And certainly all these conflicts and wars and fightings are horrible. And the wonderful thing about Christ is that he will bring deliverance from all of that trouble, from all of the human conflict. It will end. We are not destined for eternal wars and fightings and trials and troubles. Christ will come. He will establish His kingdom and he will bring true and lasting peace. There's a wonderful hope that the trials have an end. There is an expiration date on war and trouble. And it's Christ who brings that deliverance because he is the prince of peace. Do you remember the message of the angels to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill to men. But not only does Christ bring peace in our hearts, and not only will Christ bring peace on earth, but the Prince of Peace provides peace with God. You ever hear somebody say, I've made my peace with God? Have you heard this? Usually what they're saying is, I've just decided not to think about it anymore. Because I'll tell you, there's only one way to peace with God. There's only one way to be at peace with God. And that is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you were born, you were born an enemy of God. Your sin made you His enemy. And the only way your relationship with God can be restored is through the work of Jesus Christ. And there are, I fear a lot of people who they think they have peace with God and they think they've made their peace with God, but really what they've done is they've calloused their hearts. Because peace with God is only found through the Prince of Peace. But praise God that through Christ, I can be the friend of God. And, and I think maybe I should qualify that statement. What the words friend of God means, and that is a biblical statement, it just means I'm the opposite of his enemy. I'm on his side. doesn't mean I'm his buddy. Okay, He's my father. I have a father-son relationship with him. But the idea with the expression friend of God is I'm not his enemy anymore. I'm on God's team. He's going to treat me as his ally. Peace with God only possible through the prince of peace. As we celebrate the coming of Christ at this season, let's keep in mind and praise God for who Christ is to us. He is wonderful. He causes us to wonder. He is our counselor. He has given us good wisdom to live by. He is mighty. Strong enough to deliver. He is everlasting. He existed long before. He will exist for years to come, for eternity to come. 
And He is the Prince of Peace. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You so much for Christ. For who He is and who He has shown Himself to be. Not just in the prophecy that said He would be these these things, but the fact that we have seen and known Christ to be all of these things He has named. As we continue through the Christmas season and as we meditate on the Christ of Christmas, would we remember who He is? We remember that He is eternal, that He loves us, that He brings peace. Would you change our hearts through Your Word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.